0: Lord, thanks for your word, and thanks for loving us, and thanks for your goodness, and we just pray you'd speak to our hearts now. That your word would go deep into our hearts. That your word would be the lamp into our feet and the light into our path. That your word would be what sets us, sets us back on the right path when we tend to wander, we all tend to wander. And so, Lord, have your way with us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 19, Uh, the Lord willing, today we'll read 19 and 20. Uh, You may, if you've been with us here, you know that God is in the midst of pronouncing judgment on on the nation of Judah. Uh, Historically, after the reign of of Solomon uh, was the reign of his son Rehoboam. And during the reign of Rehoboam, the nation was split into the northern kingdom that we call, call Israel and the southern kingdom that we call Judah. And Israel by this time was conquered by the Assyrians about 150 years prior. Judah is about to be conquered. They've sort of been partially conquered by Babylon uh, at the time of this writing. Uh, they've been uh, kind of defeated twice by Babylon. And the third one's going to be the final destruction. And Ezekiel is, a, is one of the captives in Babylon during that time uh, prior to the final destruction. And what God is doing is pronouncing judgment beforehand. Judgment pronounced beforehand is called a warning, right? Judgment pronounced beforehand is called a warning, right? A tornado warning is really the, the declaration that I mean, it's not God's judgment necessarily, a tornado, but something bad is going to happen. That's called a warning. And so judgment of God, the wrath of God being pronounced beforehand, is not like just God being mean. It's God in his grace giving warning. That's judgment beforehand. Historical recollection, please catch this, historical, historical recollection of what happens to a society that may look much like ours should also be regarded as a warning. Historical recollection or reflection of what happens to a society that looked much like ours does should be regarded as a warning. And why does God warn his children? Because he's gracious. Because he's gracious. So. Last week, chapter 18, we spoke of the personal responsibility that a person has for his own actions, right? A person dies for his own sins, not, because, not for his parents' sins, right? And so uh, we saw that in chapter 18. Chapter 19, uh, he's gonna address the, the responsibility of leaders, and in chapter 20, he, just, he addresses the responsibility of nations. I put that in that context because, you know, God deals with leaders, God deals with nations. In chapter 20, particularly, God is going to um, talk about his, his dealing with the nation. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, wait a minute, in chapter 18, you said, I'm not responsible for my parents' sin. And in chapter 20, you're going to start talking about your parents' sin. Well, the point is, by the time we get to the end of chapter 20, we'll see they're repeating all the same sins that their parents repeat, uh, committed. And so it's, it's a historical reminder not to uh, fall into the same traps that the parents did, right? And that's how we should live, right? We should look at history, we should look at the mistakes of history and the consequences of those mistakes and not repeat those mistakes. But how often does that happen in reality? Don't we, do we really learn from the lessons of history as a human race? Or do we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again? We tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. But we don't have to because we are personally responsible for our actions and God uh, deals with us as individuals. And so that's kind of the context of really 18, 19, and 20. But let's start in in 19. He says, moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Of Israel, and again, we're, uh, Israel now is the word. Israel is really collectively Israel and Judah, but specifically, he's talking about Judah. But uh, in the in the context of the children of Israel, um, it's still the nation of Judah he's talking about. So God's instructing Ezekiel to sing a lamentation. A lamentation was really nothing more than a funeral song, okay, um, like a like a some would say a funeral dirge. And so this is the the, the the poem that he's going to give. He says, And say, What is your mother? A lioness. She lay down among the lions. Among the young lions she nourished her cubs. And so, the picture here is of a mother. The mother would be uh, really the nation of Judah, who birthed some cubs. And the cubs now are the princes of Israel that we see in chapter, in in verse 1. So the princes of of Israel, specifically, She's going to give us two examples, Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. You remember, uh, we had up on this slide last week, you remember uh, Josiah was the last good king of the nation of Judah. He had three sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoakim, and Zedekiah. Jehoiakim had a son, Jehoiachin. And so today we're talking, in this chapter 19, we're talking specifically about Jehoahaz, the first guy, and Jehoiachin, the second guy. All right, that's in the first nine verses here. So, she brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. Well, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened to Jehoahaz, one of her cubs, if you will, one of her princes. And he was cruel. He was um, evil. And he got carried off to Egypt. And so um, after him came Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim uh, reigned for a little while, and after Jehoiakim, um, uh, Jehoiachin reigned. And so the analogy, the, the, the lamentation goes on. When she saw that she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He, mo- he roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated by the noise of his roaring. But then the nations set against him from every from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. And so this is what happened to Jehoiachin, and uh, he was evil, just like uh, his uncle Jehoah has, and he gets carried off to Babylon. So leaders—so individuals have responsibility before God. We read in chapter 18 last week, leaders have particular responsibility before God. Leaders are accountable for the influence that they have over others— now, a leader might influence others, others are not immune from their own responsibility, they have their own responsibility, but the leaders also have a different level of responsibility, and so um, in this case, these, these two kings are uh, dealt with because of their ungodly leadership. And then he goes on, while Ezekiel's and poetic, he says, your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. So he kind of shifts gears a little bit, goes back to the vineyard uh, metaphor, right? The vineyard metaphor carries throughout the Bible in so many senses. Isaiah, I believe, chapter 5, speaks of a vineyard. You remember Jesus, when he talked to the uh, Pharisees, he says, you know, basically, uh, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this... uh, uh, this vineyard that God planted, took great care of it, had these stewards uh, in charge of it, and they were unfaithful, and God got rid of them and replaced them with, uh, with good stewards. You remember that story, right? I'm butchering it a little bit, but bear with me. The point is, Jesus was referencing this vineyard. This vineyard, bloodline, this vineyard bloodline thing is kind of a pattern that we see. We've read about it, I believe, a couple times so far in Ezekiel, that the vineyard is a picture of the nation of Israel. And God, as any gardener might know, I won't ask for a show of hands if we're gardeners. Might be disappointed. But as any gardener would know, you take care and you work the ground and you pull the weeds and you prune the plants and you do all these things and you try to get rid of the bugs and you build fence for the deer and then you build a taller fence for the deer and then you build a low fence for the rabbits and you got to do all of this stuff for the vineyard. For the health of the vineyard the point is God plants this vineyard and God does everything to make the vineyard flourish but in the Old Testament it doesn't now what does Jesus tell us in John chapter 15 one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible he says I'm the vine and you're the branches whoever abides in me bears much fruit and it's a very simple picture, right? You take a grapevine and you, or a, or a branch off of a grapevine, and you break it off and set it on the counter, and it does what? It dies. You take a grapevine and leave it there, prune it, nurture it, do what you need to do, make the, right, make the soil right, blah, 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 blah. And what does it do? It, bears, it produces grapes. So the vine either produces grapes, or the the branch either produces grapes or it dies. And so that's the picture that we see. Apart Apart from Jesus, he says there in John chapter 15, we can do what? Nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That means nothing good. We can do plenty bad. But apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. He's the vine. Were the branches, and so uh, the Old Testament uh, picture is that of Israel being this, this sort of disappointing um, uh, vineyard that doesn't produce much. Verse eleven. But she had she had strong branches for for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. And so there was a time when Israel was thriving. Right. You read the book of Joshua. There was a time of great conquest that, that God provided everything that, that they needed in order to, uh, to be the nation that he established. For us, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to go- life and godliness. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need to be the Christians we need to be. not by our own decisions, and not by our own good works, and not by our own strength, not by our own efforts, not by our own money, not by our own resources, not by our own political power, but by God. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so what he did for the, for the vineyard, he does for us. But, verse 12, she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered, and fire, the fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. So what, fire has come out What from the rod of her branches. The nation of Israel died from within. The nation of Israel died from within. and the historical context we're talking about right now, the nation of Judah is about to die from within. Well, you say, no, Babylon is coming and they're going to conquer. No, Babylon is able to come and conquer because God's judgment is coming. Their death, their destruction is from within. And interestingly, this may be more than you want to know, but you recall one of the great hopes of the nation of Israel was that the Messiah is going to come from their people. And specifically, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. So a descendant of David is going to be the Messiah. Now we know that in hindsight to be true, because we have the genealogy there in Matthew chapter 1. And so the descendant is going to be from this, this royal line of David. Now what's interesting in the Jewish mindset was, again, I said there was Josiah, and then he had three sons. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Well, when Zedekiah gets conquered by Babylon, that's during his reign, Zedekiah is taken off to Babylon, and he's no more. So to the Jewish mindset, you would think she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling, like the royal line has been cut off. You've got to get your head around the Jewish mindset and how futile and hopeless and discouraging that would be. Not only is our city destroyed, our city of Jerusalem, not only are our people carried captive to Babylon, not only has the northern kingdom already been picked off, but now we have cut off the royal line by, killing, or by taking Zedekiah captive, and he's going his, to face his death there in Babylon. So, what happened? Well, the royal line goes back through. Remember, I said the second son was Jehoiakim, and he had a son, Jehoiachin? Jehoiachin will be the line to the Messiah. Jehoiachin is also called Jeconiah. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy goes through Jeconiah. So, anyway, see, I told you that was probably more than you wanted to know. All right, chapter 20. He shifts gears here a little bit back to more of a a contemporary historical context. He's given sort of the narrative of the day. He says, It came to pass in the seventh month, in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of, of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. And so here's what, this would have been about around 591 B.C. You recall the first uh, pick off, if you will, from Babylon was in 605 B.C., the second one was in 597 BC. That's when Ezekiel goes off to Babylon. and the third one's going to be 586 BC. So according to the, to the dating here, this would be uh, in f- around 591 BC. So the Jerusalem the siege of Jerusalem is going to start about five years be- after this is written, or after this time, and the final destruction is going to be about five years after. And so again. Ezekiel gives us some good dating here. And during this time, the elders come to Ezekiel looking for advice. And this is not the first time they've come. They've come uh, before we've read about. But they come looking for advice. Hey, Zeke, give us a word from the Lord. Now, do you think they're sincere? They're not sincere. They're not sincere. Nothing in their, in their life would indicate to us that they're sincere. You know, our life should reflect our words. If I say, hey, give me a word from the Lord, then I should have a life that seeks a word from the Lord. And so they didn't, and they were hypocritically coming to advice, coming for advice. And um, just, let, just for the record, God sees through that stuff. God sees right through that stuff. And so Uh, The nice thing about uh, God is God deals with us where we need to be dealt with. And I always think about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Jesus didn't answer his question. Right? He dealt with this guy. What was the problem with the guy? The guy didn't want to give up his wealth. Right? Right? So, Jesus kind of worked his way back to that was the point. He deals with us where we need to be dealt with. Even sometimes when we come to him with one question, he might give us the answer to a different question. You ever notice that? He does that. And so these guys are coming saying, Hey, give us a word from the Lord. And he says, No, let's talk about the abominations of your fathers. And then at the end here, we're going to get to these are the same ones that you guys are committing. Warren Wiersbe says this, By reviewing the history of the nation, God was judging that current generation. Sorry, I, just, I think I'm becoming a man. Anybody? At 60, your voice changes. I don't want to do that again. Warren Wiersbe still says this, By reviewing the history of the nation, God was judging that current generation because they were guilty of the same sins of unbelief and rebellion. And so again, I want to keep this in the context of what we read last week in chapter 18, and that is, we're not responsible for the sins of our fathers unless we repeat the sins of the fathers. Does that make sense? And so what he's doing is he's given a historical backdrop, and then he's going to say, you guys haven't learned the lessons from history. And so that's why he's reviewing history. He says, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. And so, basically, This is one reason it's good to read through the whole Bible. We get the whole, we understand the the point of this chapter by the context of history. So let's review the history. So the history is man sinned in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3, I believe verse 16, God promises that from the seed of woman is going to come a Savior who's going to redeem the world from sin. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, basically, that that Messiah is going to come from you. Because he says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, all the nations of the earth being blessed is really a reference to the Messiah. And so we see from the descendant of Abraham is going to come the Messiah. And so this family is going to become a big family. And then that big family is going to become a nation. And out of that nation is going to come none other than Jesus Christ, who's going to save the world from its sin problem. All right. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons named that would have been fun, but we won't go through that. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons, right? One of whom is going to go down to Egypt and get things ready for everybody else, right? That's how it worked out. That wasn't the original plan, but Joseph goes down to Egypt, sold into slavery. Next thing you know, he's uh, second only to Pharaoh himself, and there's a famine in the land, and the rest of the family by this time comes down to Egypt. They're in Egypt. There's about 70 of them down there in Egypt, a big family, right? 70 is a big family, right? Even a couple generations, Seventies, a big family. And so they, over time, become a nation of probably two to three million people. By this time, they're slaves in Egypt, and God is going to call them from that nation to call them out of Egypt and bring them what he calls out of Egypt with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. Outstretched arm and mighty hand. Anyway, I forget which. But God's bringing them out by his power, right? And that's when they are kind of identified as the nation of Egypt. And so, all this is the work of God. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It's all God's plan for saving mankind. And so he says, out of Egypt, I'm going to bring those people. Then in verse 7, he goes on. He says, then... I said to them, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before your eyes, before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so there was an interesting thing in Egypt while that time, during that time they grew from 70 people to 3 million, right? There's also, oh, by the way, something going on in the nation of Egypt. Egypt was very idolatrous. They had tons of these pagan gods. And in fact, um, most commentators would say, each of those 10 plagues that God was giving to the land of Egypt was a demonstration of his power over each of their little g gods that they had there in Egypt. Like, you know, there's the, the, you know, they worship the Nile River. Well, God turns the Nile River into blood, and it goes on and on and on, and God destroys each of their, their idols, or he overpowers each of their idols to demonstrate that he's God. And he says, Notice, I am the Lord your God. He does not say, We are the Lord's your gods, right? He says, I am the Lord your God. When Moses said, Hey, who should I say? You know, when God calls Moses at the burning bush and he says, Go back and get those people out of Egypt, Moses is like, Who should I tell him sent me? He says, I am sent you. God's emphasizing well, a lot of things there, but one of the things he's emphasizing is he is one God because the known world at that time was all about multiple deities. And so what God is saying is, when I brought you out of Egypt, I said, throw away the abominations which are before your eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Now, if I said that we all need to learn from history, then we could maybe extrapolate that a little bit to say throw away the abominations which are before our eyes. And do not defile ourselves with the idols of America. And we can each decide how that applies, as the Holy Spirit would show us. But there are idols even today. We don't you know, go to the silversmith and get, get him to make us one that we can set on our fireplace mantle. But we do have idols in our society, and uh, they are many. And really, anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God is potentially an idol. And so we need to be very careful about that. Verse eight, he goes on, But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away their abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for their for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so God has this thing he's talking about. He said, "Leave your idols. Leave those idols in Egypt. Don't bring them out." Well, you know the story, right? <clears throat> it took about 12 seconds after they came out, that Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And he's up there too long, and the people get bored, and they say, what's going on here? Let's make ourselves a golden calf. So they pull out all their gold, they melt it down, they build this calf. What would you think, would, you, would any of you, like, if, <clears throat> let's say, your, your leader, whoever it is, in whatever context, goes away, he says, I'll be back in a little bit, but he doesn't tell you exactly what a little bit means. And he's gone longer than you think. Would it come to your head, you know what we should do? We should build a gold calf and bow down to it and worship it. Would that come to your mind? No. Where do they get that idea? They got it from Egypt, right? Now, we might come up with, you know, let's build a gold iPhone, right? Well, if you're an ancient, in, in the ancient world... You wouldn't come to your mind to build a golden iPhone. But today you might build a golden iPhone. Lots of apps. Do all kinds of cool stuff. You could shop with it, right? Talk to your friends with it. Heaven forbid you have to look them in the eye and use words, right? But never mind. So anyway, they're all about this idolatry so familiar to them that they build this golden calf in the middle of the desert shortly after God did all these 10 plagues and brought them out, and they did not learn. But God, notice this, God says, but I acted for my name's sake. God showed them grace and mercy because God is all about grace and mercy. God had to deal with them, and God consistently throughout those desert years dealt with the people, but he had to deal according to his namesake. And I think this, keeps, this brings to mind the fact that our sin... Now, God, God can take care of himself, right? God can defend himself. God's reputation doesn't need our help. But there is a thing, particularly as Christians, that our sin can sometimes potentially affect the reputation of God in the eyes of others. Does that make sense? Nathan the prophet told David after he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, you have given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme. Right? You've given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme. Can that never be said of us? Please. I don't want my life To cause somebody else to say Well that church You know this church is just They're just full of Hypocrites I don't want my life to ever Give anybody reason to say that Right Now are we perfect? No Usually when somebody says that Are we misunderstood? Yeah we're misunderstood Believe me I've been misunderstood More times than I can count But The point is, we want to do all we can to not give the enemies of God opportunity to blaspheme. And so God says, for my namesake. So God is preserving his namesake, and he is going to preserve his reputation throughout the world, throughout history. And so um, he's going to bring them out. And so verse 10, he says, Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, which if a man does, he shall live by them which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, this may be a little bit splitting hairs, but I want to harp on this for just a second. Number one, God brings them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Number two, God's laws are those which if a man does, he shall live by them. God's word is what we live by. God's Word is what we live by. God's Word is the means to follow the lamp into our feet and the light into our path. But it says also, and this is always kind of curious to me, God also gave sign, the Sabbath as a sign between him and the Jews. Now, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, okay? I get that. But there are some things, like we don't adhere to all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Fair enough, right? In the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, I believe, 16, um, you know, the people were like, should we make all of our kids get circumcised? No, you don't have to do that, okay? And so there are pieces of this, but the Sabbath was a sign between God and the Jewish people. Now, should we have this concept of we rest we rest every so often? Maybe a week's probably a good idea. It's a good, it's a good idea for us. But the Sabbath wasn't a law for us like it was for the Jews. Fair enough? So, but curiously, the Sabbath was a big deal to God. Now, think through the Old Testament, uh, through the Ten Commandments for a second. You got things in there like don't murder, all right? We'd call that a big one, right? Murdering, I just want to go on record here. Murder is very frowned upon in this church, okay? We don't like murder, okay? Don't commit adultery. We might call that a big one, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We would even call that one a big one remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If we're honest, we're kind of like, really? That's in there with murder? Right? Does that make sense? Here's, I think, the, and again, this may be splitting hairs, but here's what I think might be the application for us. Forgetting to adhere to a Sabbath for the Jewish people is kind of like, okay, back up a second. You got six work days, and you rest on the seventh. Why would you not re- rest on the seventh? Maybe you might be able to get a little more, right? And we saw hints of that in the desert with the manna, right? On the, ma- on, you know, when the manna first came down, God says, hey, on the, on the, you know, before the Sabbath, get enough to get you through the Sabbath. And they didn't, and then they go out on the Sabbath, they try to get some, and they kind of store it up a little bit, and it grows worms and gets nasty. Right? so God is kind of dealing with him on that that temptation to neglect the Sabbath I think the Sabbath to the Jewish people and conceptually to us is that time to remember that God takes care of me God has been good maybe it's just a pause to be thankful a pause to reflect and say I'm not driving the ship of my own life maybe it's in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths trust in the Lord with all your heart maybe the Sabbath is as big a deal as murder because that's the starting point by which we forget God and start to drive our own decisions is that fair So now we're not talking about the demise of the nation of Israel. We're talking about me forgetting God. Me forgetting to appreciate God for who he is and what he's done. And that may be as big a deal as murder in the eyes of God. Fair enough? So God says, you guys got idols and you didn't even remember my Sabbaths. verse 15. So, I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye would not spare them. My, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, my eye spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. And so, uh, here again, God determined at that point that everybody 20 years old and older, uh, after they said, we're not going into the promised land, everybody 20 years old and older, uh, died off in the desert except for Joshua and Caleb because they did not rebel. Everybody else rebelled uh, and dealt the consequences accordingly. And uh, so, God did judge those people. But I said to their children, verse 18... I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers. So God's, God allowed everybody 20 years old and older to die in the desert. And he's going to raise up another generation. By the time they come into the promised land, we've got an entirely new generation. And this is who God's talking to then. He says, but I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So imagine you're a kid. I mean, some of these people would have kind of seen the full spectrum, right? Like you're a kid, 10 years old, we'll say. In Egypt, old enough to see ten plagues come down on the gods of Egypt, right? Probably old enough to know what those gods of Egypt were that those people worshipped, and you see God overpower each, you know, those gods one at a time till finally there's tremendous destruction and the death of every firstborn Egyptian in every home. And you would, would that get your attention if you're a 10 year old kid? You might get mine, right? And then God brings you out of Egypt. You see the Red Sea part. Would that get your attention if you're a kid? Get mine. And then you get across uh, the Red Sea and God brings this supernatural manna from heaven every day so you can eat and sustain yourself. Would that get your attention? Get mine. And then God sends, uh, God says, hey, I want you to go up and take the promised land and you say, wait a minute, God. We want to send 12 spies there and scope it out. They send 12 spies there and scope it out. They come back. Ten of them say, it's an awesome land, flowing with milk and honey. No doubt about it. God is right. God's blessed us. But God's partly right because there are giants in the land and we can't take them. So ten of the twelve said we can't take them. Joshua and Caleb said we can take them because, hello, this is God we're talking about. God just destroyed Egypt, right? God made the water come back on Pharaoh's army and drown them in the Red Sea? I think God can bring us into the promised land. But only two said that. And the influence of the ten, the Bible says, overnight. Catch that. Negative influence is highly contagious. Negative influences are like the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Omicron of COVID in terms of their contagiousness, okay? Negative attitudes. The negative report from those 10 spies was highly, highly contagious, so much so that the, everybody in the nation, everybody in the camp, except for Joshua and Caleb, never made it into the promised land. Get that? So the 10-year-old kid, is watching all of, his, all of his parents and uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody else over 20 years old systematically die in the wilderness. And then God brings them up to the edge of the wilderness, in the pro, edge of the promised land, still in the wilderness. They've defeated a couple of enemy kings on the east side of the Jordan River. God's going to bring them into the Jordan River. If you're a 10-year-old kid, now you're a 50-year-old kid, if you're a 50-year-old kid by now and you've seen all of that, would you say, whoa, I think we should worship the Lord. And I think we should obey a Sabbath. If God, I don't get it, but God's pretty serious about the Sabbath. I think we should probably do that, right? Wouldn't you think you'd do that? I think I would. And yet, maybe I don't recognize my own fallibility because they all fell again, right? They all repeated the sins of their fathers. And so, again, that's why we have, to, we must adhere to the Word of God, and we must do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I said to your children, don't walk like your, like your parents did. I'm the Lord your God. And then in verse 21, he says, notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to... Observe my judgments, which, by the way, those judgments, if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. And so God, again, is, is taking care of his own uh, reputation For my namesake, he says. For my namesake. Verse 23. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their fathers' idols. Now, this is interesting. As early as as Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64, says this. Again, Deuteronomy 28 is when they're, they're in the promised land, I'm sorry, in the desert, getting ready to go into the promised land. This is what God is saying now to this second generation of the children of Israel in the desert. He says, if you don't obey me, if you keep doing what your parents did, if you keep serving idols, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. So all the way back in Deuteronomy, God says, if you guys don't, if you guys don't change course here, you're going to be scattered to other nations. What happened? They were what? Scattered to other nations. And even so much in terms of God's, like one step at a time, judgment and warning 150 years prior the northern kingdom of israel got scattered by the assyrians right the people we're talking about here these elders that come to sit at ezekiel's feet and say talk to us give us a word from the lord they knew that their relatives in the northern kingdom have already been scattered a fulfillment of deuteronomy chapter 28 and so God predicted even back then that if they persist in their sin, they're going to wind up in places like Assyria and Babylon. And yet they didn't heed him. Therefore, I also gave them up to the statutes that were not good and judgments which by, which, by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused the firstborn to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. So, you know, God has his limits. And they persisted in their sin so much that God says, I gave them up. Verse 25, I gave them up. There's a thing, theologically, that I don't fully understand. I don't know that our brains can. But I said, God saves us. I've said this a million times, right? God saves us, and God sustains us, right? There's a thing, if you look in Romans chapter 1, it says, it uses the same terminology, God gives some people up to their own desires. There's a, there's a principle here that if we demand, 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 demand our own way, that at some point God says, all right, all right you want idols? I'll send you to Babylon. Tons of idols in Babylon. You want idols? And and there's a scary thing. I mean, we're saved by grace, right? We're not saved by works. I understand the sovereignty of God. I understand all of that. But, you know, I want God to, according to Romans 8, I want God to be the one to conform me into the image of Christ, I want God to do that work in my life. I don't want God to ever say, hey, you're on your own. God says here, I gave them up to statutes that were not good. You demand your own way, it's a scary place to be. None of us want that. None of us want that. We want God to conform us into the image of His Son. Verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God In this too, your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me, when I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hands and an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees. There they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also went up sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, what is this high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. The the word Bama is a transliteration meaning high place. And so these high places were places where they offered their pagan uh, sacrifices. And God said, even when you came into the promised land that I brought you, You did the same thing in the promise, your ancestors did the same thing in the promised land. Therefore say to the house of Israel, verse 30, thus says the Lord God, are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers? So this is where he's bringing it around. Your fathers did all this and now you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say we will be like the Gentiles, like the families of the other countries serving wood and stone. And so God says, I'm not going to be worshipped by you. I'm not going to be inquired of by you guys when you insist on living according to your own sin. Verse 33. As I live, says the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you're scattered. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will bring you out into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness and the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So just as God predicted the Jews to be scattered when they rebelled, God also promised to regather them. This is ultimately fulfilled uh, in the millennial kingdom, we'll see, after the return of Jesus. Verse 39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve every one of you his idols. And hereafter, if you will not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. And so he's saying, you guys go decide. You're worshiping your idols, and then you're coming to inquire of me? It doesn't work that way. If If you insist on worshiping your idols, go worship your idols. Now, if you go to the Christian bookstore, and see a bunch of plaques on the wall, right? Somewhere on that, somewhere amongst all those collection of plaques, or Hobby Lobby, there's one from Joshua, from the book of Joshua. What's it say? It says, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. But I think the context of that verse is is amazing. This is what Joshua says at the end of the book of Joshua. Again, you're the 50-year-old kid. Now, I don't know, you're older than that now, right? Probably my age maybe, right? The 50-year-old kid, you've gone through all that. You you were born in the land of Egypt. You saw all that. You saw all the desert. You came into the promised land. You saw the walls of Jericho fall. You saw God totally Take over this promised land and give it to you and your family. And at the end of that, at the end even of that, Joshua has to tell the people this. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, I'm responsible for my own self. I've watched you guys, well, he, he was all the way back there, right? I've watched you guys ever since the land of Egypt. Give lip service to God. And now finally I'm saying, just choose one or the other. Like Revelation says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Choose one or the other. And I believe God would say to us today, choose one or the other. Choose to serve him. But if you insist on serving the other, don't give him lip service. Choose one or the other. And God, back in Ezekiel, he says, If you want to serve your idols, go, serve every one of you his idols. And hereafter, if you'll not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. For on my, verse 40, for on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, shall serve me. There I will accept them, and there I will require your offerings and the firstfruits of your sacrifices. Together with all your holy things, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord. And so it's a beautiful picture of restoration. Through the words of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, the people know that in 70 years, they're going to come out of Babylon, and they're going to regather there in Jerusalem. And that will be a partial fulfillment of these verses. A more complete fulfillment is yet to come. Again, in the millennial kingdom, after Jesus comes back, sets foot on on planet Earth and establishes his millennial kingdom uh, based there in Jerusalem. So what we see here would be, what we see happened 70 years later, is a partial fulfillment of all this. This is the ultimate fulfillment. It'll be a beautiful thing to look forward to. We don't want to miss it. Then 45. He says, furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest land the south, and say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree, and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all the faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God, they, shall, they say of me, does he not speak parables? And so um, some people say this. these last verses 45 to 49 are, in the original Hebrew, are part of chapter 21. Anyway, we just read it there, because that's where it cuts off in our Bible. But um, this is really a reminder of the coming judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah, and specifically to Jerusalem. God is going to bring judgment to them. Uh, to the people here that want to give lip service to God, so let 's not give lip service to God. let 's learn from history. let 's learn what happens to a nation that rejects the Lord. let 's hap- learn what happens to people who insist insist on not surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. let 's learn what happens when we obey. God says those are the that, that that's how we live. We live by those laws. And know that God wants to conform us into his image according to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us, that you give us these warnings, that you even gave the warnings to those people and you give them yet again to us that we could heed the warnings of your scripture Lord help us not to fall into idolatry as these people did all the way back from Egypt into the desert into the promised land through the times of the judges through the times of the kings after the conquest of the northern kingdom they still followed their pagan idols Lord help us not to do that help us to surrender to you And that we could have the joy of experiencing you transform us into your image and conform us further into the image of Jesus day by day, month by month, year by year, in a life of faithfulness. Help us to be those people. And we'll give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.